Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. My name is Fung and I'm joined in the studio today uh, by Francis. Good morning Francis. Morning Fung and thanks so much for um, letting me join the show today. It's my first time on air. Yeah, so how are you feeling? Um, nervous but excited um, and so great to be in the studio with you with your experience and to have the 3CR listeners um, who are amazing um, on the other end of the line. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're, we've got a big show coming up today, so I'll just take us through what we've cu- got coming up. We're starting this morning's show by bringing you various speeches that have taken place at the Free Palestine rallies in Nam, Melbourne. Um, so these speeches were uh, compiled and originally played on Accent of Women. So thanks so much to Giselle for putting that together. At 7.30, we'll be speaking to Dr. Louisa Smith, who is a senior lecturer in disability and inclusion at Deakin University. Louisa joins us on the show to talk about models of care for LGBTIQ plus people with dementia. At 7.45 we'll be joined by Chloe DS who is a refugee rights activist, green left journalist and fellow 3CR presenter and Chloe will be speaking to us about the people's blockade which is taking place um, from the 24th to the 27th of November as well as the fundraising barbecue that's going to be put on today. At 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking with Dr. Stephanie Westcott, who is a lecturer at Monash University, and she'll be speaking to us about the federal government's three-year project to address toxic masculinity on social media, as well as the dangerous influence of misogynist influences. And finally, at 8.10, we'll be listening to a conversation that I had with Kristen Lee, who is the uh, communications director and volunteer coordinator at the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses. And uh, yeah, so yesterday we talked about um, saying up to the cup and the increasing public support for this issue. So stay tuned for a big show. We'll be back with the news headlines right after this. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. 
Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Here are the news headlines for today, the 7th of November 2023. We are continuing to bring you updates on the escalation of a decades-long occupation of Palestine into genocide. This weekend saw continuing bombardment of Gaza by Israel's military. Following the bombings last week of the Jabalia refugee camp were strikes on at least three refugee camps over the weekend. On Saturday, at least 47 people were killed in a strike on al-Maghazi camp in central Gaza, according to Gaza's Ministry of Health. These refugee camps are densely populated and home to many families with children. They are also places where people who have long been displaced have sheltered. As per the World Health Organization, we are seeing women and children bearing the brunt of the conflict in Gaza. Patrick O'Leary from Griffith University has also written about the disproportionate impact on vulnerable groups. According to the UN, more than 41% of what we're now seeing is up to 10,000 people killed in Gaza as of October 31st are children. Um, Moreover, many of the people injured or missing are children. Save the Children warns of population displacement in Gaza. In an interview with Al Jazeera Arabic, the director of Save the Children in Palestine said that the ongoing Israeli bombardment of Gaza is not only an issue of deaths and injuries among Palestinians. Jason Ian Lee also said that the situation is an issue of population displacement under very difficult humanitarian conditions. Since October 7, an estimated 1.5 million of the 2.3 million people besieged in Gaza have already been internally displaced, according to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Finally, in Australia yesterday, Australian Greens walked out during question time in Parliament, um, asking the Labor government to join calls for a ceasefire. As Senator Maureen Faruqi, the Deputy Leader of the Australian Greens, said in a post on X, like millions of Australians, we're shocked, horrified and angered by Israel's massacre of almost 10,000 people in Gaza. In the Australian context, on a more domestic level, we're seeing talk of increased interest rates and the RBA is expected to lift interest rates from 4.1% to 4.35% today. These rate rises and the press focus on mortgage holders are also connected to a larger housing crisis um, and particularly a rental crisis with higher prices, low vacancy rates, inadequate public housing and increasing homelessness. The Greens yesterday announced a new policy plan for the City of Brisbane which would enact land land rate increases for any property investors who increase the rent. Candidate for Law Mayor Jonathan Sri Ranganathan said, Our message to landlords is pretty straightforward. If you put up the rent, we'll put up your rates. 
This policy by the Greens would be designed to run for two years and would require landlords to keep rents at or below January 2023 levels. Meanwhile, the Council to Homeless Persons reports a public housing waitlist blowout which is negatively impacting vulnerable groups, including victims, survivors of family violence. On November 1st, the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing released an annual report which has revealed the wait time for people who have experienced family violence is now an average of 23.6 months, up from 17.1 months in the 2021-2022 report. Rating times are now more than double the government's target of finding family violence victim survivors a safe home within 10.5 months. Consumer Affairs Victoria's annual report showed the number of challenges to rental rises has also more than doubled in the 2022-2023 financial year. Council to Homeless Persons Acting CEO Tom Johnson said the data showed more people were being pushed to the brink of homelessness. It's incredibly alarming that people experiencing family violence are now waiting two years on average for public housing, he said. Finally, it's Melbourne Cup Day today and we're seeing a cultural shift and reducing support for that so-called race that stops a nation with more general awareness of animal cruelty. According to the latest Guardian Essential poll, only 11% of Australians show a high interest in the cup. Brands are also distancing themselves from this event. Longtime sponsor Maya this year removed their sponsorship, stating that the event no longer aligned with their priorities. And as Green Senator Marine Fruki said, it's time for sponsors to catch up with the times. The clock is ticking on this carnival of cruelty. Uh, we'll have more on the cup um, with the interview later in the show. But for those who do want to say no to the cup, you can join the movement Nup to the Cup at nuptothecup.org. Thanks so much for those news headlines, Francis. We'll be back uh, with a song right after this message. Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty, by saying NUP to the Cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday 7th of November for Fashions on the Field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. I sang the words I will not say so. Hey, this is Greta Ray, and you are listening to 3CR 855am Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Welcome back to 3CR Radio. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast, 8.55am, or maybe you're streaming online at 3cr.org.au. We're 
going to bring you a track now. This is by punk band from Nam Super Tart, and this is their track called Boot Licker. undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think uh, we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. You're listening to 855 AM. We start this morning's show by bringing you various speeches that have taken place at Free Palestine rallies in Nam, Melbourne. These speeches were originally played on Accent of Women on the 31st of October. Thank you to Giselle Hanna for this next excerpt. It's now over three weeks that Israel has intensified its genocidal war against Gaza and the international movement for a free Palestine is marching in its millions worldwide. More than 7,000 people are now reported to have been killed across the Gaza Strip and residents of the West Bank are systematically being harassed and assaulted by Israeli settlers. On today's program, I bring you noises and speeches from various Free Palestine rallies held over the last three weeks in Melbourne. And we start with Tasneem Mahmoud Samak, one of the rally organisers and an activist with Free Palestine Melbourne. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! 
years and also uh, active obviously in struggling for the rights of my community here in Australia for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities here in Australia so I do want to acknowledge that we're standing on that we are standing on the land of the Wurundjeri and the uh, Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation this land has never been ceded never been ceded. It is always was and always will be Aboriginal land. 
And I want to pay my respects to Elders past and present and to every other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us here today. I know there are many. So I wanted to just talk a little bit. As we know, for the last two weeks, Israel has killed more than 4,400 Palestinians uh, in Gaza, destroying entire neighbourhoods. Shame, yes. Shutting off food, water and electricity to millions. For the last... Shame, for the last 17 years, Gaza has been under an illegal blockade. This is a fucking war crime, a war crime against humanity under international law. The Gaza Strip is only 12 kilometres wide. It is the si half the size of Canberra, half the size of Canberra. Its length of Gaza is what it would take to drive from Flinders Street Station to Altona Beach here in Melbourne. That is how small it is. It has a density of more than 6,000 people per square, uh, square kilometre. Here in Australia, it's 3.5 people for that. So you can see this is the most densely populated area in the world. It is an open-air prison. It has been treated with absolute repression and oppression for more than 75 years since the beginning of the Nakba. And it's unsurprising that the Australian state is in solidarity with the Israeli state. Both are settler colonial states. Both states have been founded on the ethnic cleansing of the indigenous populations. Both states have been founded on genocide. And we're seeing another genocide happening in Gaza today. In Australia, the settled colonial state results in more oppression and disadvantage for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from my community. We are the highest incarcerated population in this country. Our children are being jailed at a massive rate compared to non-Indigenous children. They are dying in custody. Just the other day, in Western Australia, a 16-year-old Aboriginal boy committed suicide. He was locked up in Kasarina and Banksia prison. This is a prison that has, for the last year or two, had repeated reports from independent custodial services saying that human rights abuses are taking place, that the children locked up in that prison are having their human rights abused. There have been repeated and ongoing attempts of suicide. And now we have sadly seen a successful one where a 16-year-old boy separated from his family was taken, has taken his own life. There is a suicide crisis in our communities because of the repression and oppression that continues in this country. And the thing is, the same is happening in Palestine. There is administrative detention. There are thousands of Palestinians locked up in Israeli prisons, including women and children. There are thousands who are separated from their families because they just want to live a normal life to have the same human rights as all of us. We are seeing 
countries. We are disadvantaged on so many structural levels. Inside the Israeli state, there are 65 laws that actively discriminate against Palestinians. 65 laws. In the occupied West Bank, there is ongoing repression happening right now, just as there is in Gaza. And the world leaders like Albanese, well, he's not really a world leader, but Albanese and Biden and everyone else are looking on and turning a blind eye to what is happening. They are turning a blind eye to genocide. And they think that this will crush the Palestinian people. It will not. For both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and Palestinian people, our existence is our resistance. And while the world leaders and the world media may have abandoned Palestine, you haven't. You haven't, and you will continue to come out. I am faithful in that. And it's not just here in Australia. Yesterday there was a rally also in Sydney, 15,000. There have been protests in Barcelona, in Venezuela, in the US, in the heart of the beast, in the US. There are worldwide protests taking place because we can see what is happening. We stand in solidarity with Palestine. We stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. We say no to occupation. We say no to apartheid. We say no to genocide. And with your strength and your dedication, there will be a free Palestine. Thank you. Free, free Palestine. We just heard from some of the speakers at the Free Palestine rallies that have taken place in Nam, Melbourne, each Sunday since October 15th. There will be another rally this Sunday outside the State Library at 12pm, so please bring your family, friends and stand in solidarity with the people of Palestine. We're now going to play another song for you. This is by Palestinian artist based in Nam. Uh, her name is Yara, and this is her song called Lonely Love Affair. Something strange is in
was Lonely Love Affair by Yara. Dr. Louisa Smith is a Senior Lecturer in Disability and Inclusion at Deakin University. Louisa is a Qualitative Social Researcher in Disability, Dementia and Complex Support Needs. Louisa has a particular interest in research that actively develops and supports, uh, supports for those who are most socially isolated, including people with disabilities and or dementia who experience gender and sexuality diversity. Uh, Louisa joins us on the show this morning to speak about models of care for LGBTIQ plus people with dementia. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Louisa. Thank you very much. Louise, I was wondering if you could start by telling our listeners more about your research and your areas of interest. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess in terms of the um, dementia LGBT plus um, research, it really started when I was doing um, an eight-month ethnography in a, a dementia ward. And so I was going into um, the um, dementia space in a residential aged care facility um, most days a week and spending a lot of time there. And um, it was an incredible experience of connecting with um, people with dementia and um, developing supports with them, um, as well as observing, you know, what was going on there um, in terms of the staff and the organisation. But what did happen was that I noticed I went increasingly back into the closet. And um, as a proud lesbian woman, it became really incongruous with my experience of, of the rest of my life, where suddenly when someone would ask me, you know, where my husband was, I'd sort of exert my gaze and like, oh, you know, um, you know, ignore that question and feel really uncomfortable. And um, so that really um, generated a lot of, you know, big feelings and took a lot to work through. But what it, I landed on was what what happens for all the LGBT plus people who are in these spaces, who are in residential aged care and aged care more generally, which are so heteronormative um, and cisgendered in their assumptions around who who's coming um, and the kinds of even structures of support. Um, and it made me think, you know, I'm having these feelings and I get to leave. So what happens for, for older older people in, in my community? It really prompted me to um, 
investigate ways of supporting um, that group of people um, and to think through what it means for us um, as members of LGBT plus community to really support um, older people, um, particularly those with dementia. Yeah, and for people who have lived decades of their life experiencing potential discrimination from different institutions, from the education system to the healthcare system, I can imagine that uh, having to be in this space where there is still um, those heteronormative assumptions would be um, not just disappointing but quite damaging. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's really at the crux of it, I think, when we're thinking about um, older people is that, you know, they've experienced that, you know, gender and sexuality um, diversity has been criminalised and pathologised for their whole lives and healthcare systems in particular have been really complicit in that um, and actually, you know, actively um, engaged in those kind of oppressive and discriminatory practices that have made life more difficult for older um, LGBT plus people. And so um, I think... In, you know, in terms of the research that we've done, um, reviewing international literature as well as our local research, we've really found that a lot of people will really avoid um, avoid systems and, and um, formal care for as long as possible and off, often to the detriment of health, really, um, and will become increasingly socially isolated. Yeah, and on this show, we've talked about that before, you know, this experience of women within the healthcare system, especially First Nations women and women Mm. from migrant and refugee backgrounds. Um, And now here with you, we're talking about LGBTIQ people Mm. as well. So what recommendations would you make um, to ensure that the healthcare system is uh, is providing the care uh, for queer people um, in the way that they deserve? Mm. Um, Such a big question. And I guess there is a distinction too between um, the healthcare system and also the aged care sector. Um, and, and they do interact, but they do also have very different workforces. Um, and so we, we need to keep that in mind as well when we're thinking about this group. Um, I guess we, we really haven't um, developed enough competencies around. Um, and so a lot of staff um, and the, the whole um, sector really needs increased training on what it's like, what people have experienced over their life course and how that might impact on the way that they receive care and support. And particularly if we're thinking about trans and gender diverse people who may not identify as trans, um, it is really important because this may be the first time that they would have experienced personal care, um, which is a really you know, intimate and can be very confronting um, if you are not receiving that care from somebody who has insight and um, confidence, cultural confidence around what that looks like and even clinical and um, knowledge and skills around how to support somebody um, who's gender diverse. Yeah, and I guess that's why it's so important to be able to uh, develop these models of care uh, mm. in collaboration with people with lived experience. Absolutely. So, um, and this is one of the things that that 
uh, you'll be speaking about and hopefully you'll be doing at the upcoming workshop as part of the AAG conference. The workshop is yeah. called End of the Rainbow Models of Care for LGBTIQ plus people with dementia. Can you tell us more about this event? Yeah, so it's in the Gold Coast. If anyone wants to have a little um, quick trip next week on Tuesday, we'll be running the, um, this. Um, it's really a, um, a co-design and development workshop with aged care um, workers, um, people who are attending the Australian um, Association for Gerontology Conference. Um, and I'm doing it in collaboration with my fantastic colleagues at um, LGBTIQA Plus Health Australia, um, which is the peak body for um, health for our community um, in Australia, um, and Hammond's Care, who, um, ha- who uh, also supports Dementia Support Australia, which is a federally funded um, uh, support for um, people with living with dementia and their carers. And so we've been working together for some time to think through models of care, and we'll be presenting of our thoughts around that and working with people um, who are attending that workshop to really further develop our um, our ideas about the model of care and, and, and include their insights into what that could look like. Yeah, and so when we think about ways of providing care, uh, whether that's personal care in the aged care system or healthcare more generally, have you been speaking to people about this and, and uh, have you... Have there been any ideas around what that could look like? Um, yeah, so it, I think that um, one of the really... I mean, a lot of the things are quite nuanced and I think that's really important that at the centre of this is the person and their lived experience. And um, LGBT plus people um, who have dementia have really, really diverse experiences across their life course and of their gender and sexuality identity. And so it's incredibly important to really understand um, over time, and that won't be an immediate thing that you can just, you know, ask a question about, like, you know, diabetes treatment, but to understand over time what that actually is for them and how important and what that means so that you can really provide basic person-centred care, but with some additional things around thinking really carefully about privacy, for instance, um, because a lot of people won't... um, feel comfortable disclosing their gender and sexuality identity to a broad number of people. So we really need to be thinking about how to support people's privacy, um, but still um, provide them with the kinds of care that they need um, and that is still person-centred. I mean, another really key thing has been connecting with community um, organisations and providing a link between LGBTIQA plus organisations and health promotion organisations and the aged care sector so that there can be an immediate dialogue um, and support around um, people um, living with dementia. Definitely. So thank you for that, uh, Louisa. Finally, if there are listeners who would like to learn more about this, who perhaps know um, people uh, living with dementia, where can they go for more information? Yeah, um, excellent question. So please contact me, Louisa Smith at Deakin University. But um, you can also um, reach out to um, on the LGBTQIA plus Health Australia website. There is a section on dementia. There's also a section in dementia um, on the Dementia Australia website. Um, and um, Hammond Care. Um, and Dementia Support Australia also have some, some really fantastic resources, particularly around 
no changes in behaviour um, in um, for LGBTQA plus people when uh, as dementia progresses. Great, thank you so much for that, Louisa, and we'll make sure to include those resources on our website after the show. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast this morning. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Louisa Smith speaking to us about co-designing models of care for LGBTIQ plus people with dementia. You can follow Louisa on Twitter at Louisa E. Smith 1. We're going to go to another track now. This is by June Jones. It's her latest single and it's called Bubblegum. Touch my arm in the pool, I'm a fool for the way that I feel when you're hanging around me. Heartbeat down in my butt, I'm a slut for the things that you do from the day that you found me. And when you hold me in your hand, and you unwrap me, I know just where I stand, I know exactly Sweetness just for a night, not a life that you really need to make a lot of space for. When you hold me in your hand and you unwrap me, I know just where I stand. I know exactly what. on the banks of the Yarra River in Elphington on Sunday the 19th of November is a celebration of music, community and the environment. 
Music all afternoon featuring local and established artists including Kutcher Edwards and Al Sakuma Beats. Food and drinks available, great kids activities and displays from environmental groups. Why not join Havana Palava's Music March from Elfington Park at 11.45am and make a day of it. More details at musicfromthewetlands.com.au Music from the Wetlands is a 3CR supporter. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We now welcome back Chloe DS, who is a refugee rights activist, Green Left journalist and fellow 3CR presenter. Chloe joins us on the show to speak about the upcoming people's blockade of the world's largest coal port at Moolabimba, Newcastle. Uh, as well as the barbecue that's held in Nam today to raise money for activists travelling from Nam to Newcastle. Thanks for joining us again on the show, Chloe. Thank you for good morning um, to everyone out there and Tuesday Breakfast team. I'm coming to you this morning from the land of the Boomerang people. Thanks so much for joining us again. Um, for people who aren't aware, can you tell us uh, a bit more about this coal port set in Newcastle? Yeah. So this, um, so the, it's it's a it's actually the world's largest coal port, and it's um, so Rising Tide is actually it's a Mullumbimba based um, group that's organising the blockade at Horseshoe Beach on the land and waters of the Wurrumi and Awabakal people, um, and Mullumbimba is about a thousand kilometres from from Melbourne. Um, now, the, the world's largest coal port in Newcastle, it's, it, it's actually emitting 1%. 1% of global carbon dioxide emissions come from the coal um, shipped through this port. So in a sense, this, um, the, the location of Mullumbimba is, it can be seen as the global epicenter of the social and economic disaster capitalism that's being unleashed on us all. So we are seeing it as one of the most strategic places on the planet for climate activists to target with mass civil disobedience. And um, they do have a history there. Um, the Hunter Valley workers, um, the the climate activists there have a, a long history of actually blockading that, that um, coal port. Yeah, 1% is, that's unbelievable, really. Um, has there been any has there been any response or yeah any communication from the government about about the amount of um, emissions that are being released from this coal port because I feel like you know they've talked a big talk about uh, the climate emergency so has there been any talk about um, about closing the coal port? <laughs> yeah, there is. There is like uh, activists have been demanding it for years. I should also add that um, the. 
the coal port has four th- over 4,400 ship movements per year, um, and it exports an average of 165 megatons of coal a year. Um, yes, there's been, um, you know, there are talks of, um, you know, transitioning to like renewable, um, 100% renewable energy by 2040, but we, we actually want to stop the coal being shipped, shipped through. And the Labor government is just, a, you know, they are wedded to coal just as much as the coalition were. They are keeping coal and gas ports, um, gas exports flowing, not just through this port, but and they're, they're actually opening up new coal and gas mines on the, along the East Coast. Um, Environment Minister Tanya Klibersek approved, just approved her fourth coal project in Queensland to run until 2073. 2073. And research from the Australian Institute reveals that revenue from coal exports was up 160, 186% between 2021 and 2022. That's an increase on, on the previous year of $73 billion. So we are in a climate emergency. The Labor government is, um, you know, not, not doing much. We've actually done um, basically nothing. Yeah, um, and we're seeing so the consequences of that climate emergency every day, everywhere in the world, um, bushfires earlier and earlier. So it seems wild that nothing's being done on that front and the fact that the Labor government is approving more coal and more gas projects is um, is just so beyond disappointing. Um, I wanted to talk about the People's Blockade, which is coming up uh, from the 24th to the 27th of November. Can you talk a bit about the program for this blockade? Yep. So in a nutshell, um, anyone uh, can join the largest peaceful, non-violent action, civil disobedience, protest for climate action in Australia's history. Um, it is a serious action. It's a ser- you know, because climate, the climate crisis is serious, but it's also going to be fun. Um, so activists will be getting on kayaks, surfboards, tinnies, and they're going to be blockading coal ships for 30 hours and stop half a million tonnes of coal being exported and burnt. Um, and thousands of people will come together to do this. You don't have to necessarily get on the water. Um, there will be things to do on the beach. Lots of people, families with children, will gather on Horseshoe Beach. There will be live music, stalls, speakers food shared by donation um, but there's going so the the program is going to be from like so there's Friday Saturday Sunday Monday Friday is going to be action training and planning Saturday we're going to um, the flotilla blockade begins at 10 a.m. then we've got live music speakers kids activities Sunday again flotilla blockade ends at 4 p.m. on the Sunday and then we've got more music um, fun on the beach and then Monday is going to be important too. That's going to be basically uh, talking about next steps in planning the movement to protect our planet. Great. It sounds like such a jam-packed program with something for everyone. Um, for people who can't get to Newcastle for the blockade, uh, how can they show their support? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so you, you could, there's lots of things you can do um, to show your support to the Rising Tide blockade. Um for instance, today we are, well, you can donate money to, to us, but if you wanted to actually come and meet us 
today we're having um, a barbecue fundraiser for the People's Blockade from 12 to 3 p.m. It's going to be at Alexandra Gardens, um, number one boathouse drive in Melbourne. You'll learn more about the blockade, um, meet some of the activists who are planning to head up to Newcastle. And for people who can't afford it, this fundraiser um, is really to help people get to the blockade. We don't want money to be a barrier to anyone who wants to join the NAM contingent. Um, And, yeah, there'll be, again, today there'll be, like, live music. There's going to be this organisation called Grub For Ya that's cooking up a really tasty vegan Thai food. Um, So, yeah, come along, join us. Um, I, could I could I just say the demands quickly? So the, yeah, the three of demands of rising tide. Yeah, definitely. So the three demands of, of rising tide. We want to immediately cancel all new coal mines and expansions, end coal mining and exports from the, the port of Newcastle by 2030, and ensure that nobody, no worker, is left behind in the shift beyond coal. So, um, fighting for a transition, a just transition away from coal is is really um, important. And it is also an act of solidarity um, uh, if you wanted to join the the blockade because, um, you know, we need to remember that most of the planet, 99.9% of those on the front line of climate catastrophe um, will never be able to attend a protest like this, people from the global south. There's going to be so many, there's already climate refugees People in Pakistan are absolutely getting smashed by the floods there. Um, Libya, Malaysia, they can't come. The, the, the survivors of the Hawaii fires, those living in Bangladesh, Kiribati or the Torres Strait, um, they, they will appreciate anyone who comes to something like this because this is something we can do here to stop climate catastrophe. And Australia is, um, you know, our, you know, the government are basically climate criminals and we need to stop um, them from continuing to um, destroy this destroying this planet and contributing so much um, yeah so so much um, to this climate catastrophe yeah for sure and I think you know the governments around the world governments who can make this change I think are banking on people not speaking up or not standing in solidarity with uh, communities around the world. So um, thank you so much for for making that point, Chloe. I think that's really important. Um, Unfortunately, we've run out of time this morning, but thank you so much for coming on the show again and talking to us about the People's Blockade as well as the fundraising barbecue um, here in Nam that's being held today. Um, Finally, for people who want to find out more uh, about various um, events and things happening around the People's Blockade, where can they go? If you haven't already, please register for the People's Blockade um, happening from November 24th to 27th. It's very easy. Just head to risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade. Um, Someone will get in touch with you. And there's a big calendar there of all the events that are taking place around it. Thank you so much, Chloe, for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning. Thanks for the opportunity, Fong. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, So that was Chloe Diaz speaking to us about the blockade taking place in Newcastle from November 24 to 27. To find out more, you can go to risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade. And you can catch Chloe on 3CR by tuning into Green Left Weekly Radio on Friday mornings from 7 to 8.30am. We'll be back with some more music right after this. 
Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but co-power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a co-power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and co-power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, non-fiction and cutting-edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on now. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between now and November the 10th will go on the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland, and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. Earlier in the show, we played a song by punk band Supertart called Bootlicker, where we're going to play another one of their tracks now, and this one's called Maxine's Garden.
and that was the song Maxine's Garden by Supertart. Dr. Stephanie Westcott is a lecturer in the School of Education, Culture and Society at Monash University Faculty of Education. Her research examines how education practice and policy intersects with and is influenced by current socio-political conditions and she is particularly interested in how feminist thinking can be used to transform education and schooling. We are joined by Stephanie this morning to discuss the federal government's three-year project to address toxic masculinity on social media and also talk about the dangerous influence of misogynist influences. Thank you for joining us on the show, Stephanie. No worries. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you could start by uh, maybe explaining to some of our listeners who might not be aware, who are some of these misogynist influences and why are they getting um, so much attention from uh, young men and boys in particular? Uh, thanks for the question. There's a few of them around, but the most infamous and the most popular is um, Andrew Tate, who is a... Um, He's recently been charged with rape and human trafficking. So he's an extremely dangerous person. But his messages are also extremely dangerous. He's, um, I, would, I would classify him as an extremist misogynist. Um, and the most, um, most dangerous thing about him, I think, is that how he weaponizes particular messages about women to attract young men to follow him and also to pay for content. So he's got a, a website and... On that website, you can sign up for something called Hustlers University, which teaches boys about wealth generation through particular channels. Um, but in terms of why he's appealing to young men, he's speaking back to the, I think, resurgence of feminism, particularly in the post-Me Too era. There's a feeling among people like Tate and some of his followers that um, they have lost their position in society, that they, they've they given over some of their power to women and that they need to reclaim that power. So there's certainly young men who follow Tate who believe that women are actually their oppressors and that Tate is, some, Tate is a figure who speaks the truth and says things as they are in a culture in where allegedly you, you cannot say particular things anymore. Um, so it's a, it's a response to me to sort of the mainstream of mainstreaming of feminist thought, um, but also I think a little bit of cancel culture popped in there as well. And how do these um, boys and young men come across these videos? Is it from actually explicitly seeking them out or is it something to do with the algorithm that uh, mm -hmm. that shows them this content? Yeah, so there was um, some journalists did an investigation earlier in the year and they found that they created a fake profile of a teenage boy and they found that Andrew Tate content was presented to them through the algorithm without them actually having to seek it. So we know that social media companies work by monetizing attention and because Andrew Tate is such a um, vilifying figure, they, they know that that will hold people's attention, so they provide his content through the algorithm. So there's that, which is deeply troubling and speaks to the ethics of social media companies. But of course, they're, they're private they're private companies, so we can't hold them to account, allegedly. Um, the other thing as well is obviously there is some peer influence. So we know that boys in schools talk to each other about Tate, that he comes up in classroom conversations among one another. And of course, there would be boys who would be curious to seek him out. But that's not to say that they're all blindly following him. 
There are, of course, boys who think he is ridiculous, who think he is a joke, who find him offensive. Um, so we're not talking about a like homogenous group of boys just um, you know pledging their allegiance to Tate at all. But um, we do know that social media companies know what holds people's attention, and the more controversial, the more interesting that is. So the algorithm has a part to play here, certainly as well. Yeah, and like you said, I think it's important to note that not all boys think like this. Um, but mm. is there? Would you say? Would you say that there? You know, is a danger in um, in watching content out of curiosity um, in terms of where this can lead or or what that can do for the development of a of a young person. Absolutely. I mean, if we're talking about um, young people and um, finding out who you are, identity formation, and you have a figure who is speaking in very clear terms about what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a man, I mean, we can understand how that might be alluring and interesting. And especially when you're speaking you're speaking into a space that may not be um, addressed very well um, in schools or if boys aren't part of other community groups or clubs where they're figuring out who they are um, and what they're interested in. One of our um, participants in our research on Tate said that she could understand why her students um, found Tate interesting um, because he he speaks in, in very certain terms about who who boys can be and how they can claim their power and how that might be interesting. Um, so certainly I think that um, that extremism would be a- appealing for some boys who are trying to figure out what it means to be a boy or a mm. man. Yeah. And so the government has announced that uh, there's going to be this three-year project to address mm. toxic masculinity on social media. Uh, what mm. do we know about um, what this project entails? We don't know too much yet, um, but we do know that it comes under the National Plan to End Violence Against Women and Children. And that is a really important point because what it signifies is that the government has recognised that there is a connection between this sort of content and violence against women. And all of the research on violence against women tells us that it begins with disrespect. And of course, Andrew Tate's messaging is all about disrespect towards women. So that acknowledgement really matters. And it particularly matters because we have an issue in Australia with violence against women, and it's not going away. Mm. So that's important. But we actually don't have a lot of information about how this will look. So the announcement said that it will use a combination of methods and mediums um, and that they will be looking to deliver this program in a variety of settings, which is also important. But unfortunately, we can't really speak to how effective this might be because we don't know the term as such. And so through your research and and, um, being an expert in this field in terms of uh, education practice, um, Mm -hmm. what would you... What, what are you hoping to see? What do you think um, might could work in, in an initiative like this? Yes, so there is some evidence about what does work in these sort of interventions. And I just need to acknowledge my colleague's work here, Professor Stephen Roberts, um, who is a sociologist. And he's really clear about what this program needs to look like. And the first thing is that this has to be a long-term program. It can't be one-off. It can't be just let's pay for a guest speaker to come and talk to the boys, which is sometimes how these programs are rolled out. 
And that just, that just doesn't work because we're talking about changing a culture. Yeah, we're talking about trying to eradicate misogyny and violence in a culture in which that is very normal. So this needs to be long-term. It needs to be, um, you know, really meaningfully rolled out. We know that in schools at the moment, we've got the Respect for Relationships curriculum in Victoria, which is which came out of the Commission into Family Violence in Victoria, and that is meant to do some of this work. But unfortunately, what teachers are telling us is that that, is just, that program itself, that curriculum itself, is just not going far enough. Mm. So this really does need to be long-term, maybe to follow students throughout their time at school. The other thing um, that this program needs to do is not just assume that boys need to hear from men about what it means to be a good man or a good person. Boys actually benefit from hearing from people of all genders, from all walks of life. So this idea that is sometimes... um, it's sometimes trusted that we need to get, you know, a good role model football player or something to come and talk to the boys. That may be great for the one day that that person is there, but then things tend to go back to the way they were once that person finishes the session. The other thing that is really important is as well um, is that this program takes a gender transformative approach. So we actually need to uncouple these ideas of what it means to be a particular gender from gendered stereotypes and norms that are self-limiting and restrictive, and that applies to both boys and girls. Mm. Um, we need to start to disrupt the notion that because you are a particular gender, you therefore then have to enact masculinity or femininity in a particular way um, and teach young people that it is about the individual identity rather than any other identity. Thank you so much for that, Stephanie. I think you've made some really good points there and we'll be keeping a close eye uh, on this project to see um, how it rolls out and what it involves and, and hopefully we can get you back on the show to talk about it as it develops. But for now, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Stephanie Westcott speaking to us about the three-year trial project to combat toxic masculinity on social media. You're listening to 3CR. We'll be back with our last segment right after this. Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday 7th of November for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Up to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. Each year, a growing number of people are rejecting the racing industry and are saying nup to the cup. Yesterday, I had a chat with Kristen Lee, who is Communications Director and Volunteer Coordinator at the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses. We talked about the latest Death Watch report that provides details on the horses that uh, died in racing this year, the increasing public support for this issue, and the actions that people can take to raise awareness and say nup to the cup. Listeners are advised that the following conversation makes explicit references to horse injury and death. Please take care when listening with little ones. I wanted to start off with 
the memorial for horses that actually took place today. So we're recording this uh, on the Monday, 6th of November. I was wondering if you could reflect on this event for our listeners. So we gathered in the centre of the Melbourne CBD where the Melbourne Cup Eve Parade used to take place. So this is the first year in 39 years that that's been not taken place. So there's various reasons given. I think the main one is that it's really slowly been losing support. So each year we've seen the crowds get smaller and smaller and smaller and uh, each year our sort of support has been getting bigger and bigger and our voice there has been getting, been getting bigger and bigger. So as the uh, jockeys and sponsors and trainers parade these horses down Swanston Street and they have fancy cars and they're waving and these horses look terrified and we've always been there to sort of use it as an opportunity to raise awareness. So that's been a great opportunity to speak to the people that do support racing for sure. But the fact that it's been cancelled is is great news. So it means that these horses won't be, you know, paraded along the, around the city. And it also means that it's a sign of the times that the city of Melbourne doesn't want to spend money. It costs them a fortune to put this event on. They have to um, reroute the trams in one of the busiest tram routes in the world. <laughs> so it's just um, it's just a sign of the times that they just can't justify spending the money anymore, in our view, um, and what a lot of other people have been saying. So, yeah, we were there to instead replace it with a memorial today. So we took that opportunity to, without the parade, to raise awareness on all the horses who have been killed in the last racing year. So we all wore black. We read out the names of every single horse. There was 168 horses killed on the racetrack in the last racing year. This, of course, doesn't include the thousands that are, you know, sent to the knackery to be turned into pet food or just shot out the back of the paddock when no longer wanted in racing. So this is literally just the the racing-related deaths from injuries in, in trials and training and races. So we read out each of their names. We had a lot of support from the crowd, which was great. Always a few people that aren't on board, people that have come to Melbourne to celebrate the Cup that had an opportunity to hear our message. So that was a really good, it was a good memorial. And then we, interestingly, found out that the racing industry had a little sort of not very well advertised side gig happening down on South Bank. So we wandered on down there with our big flags and uh, made a little bit of a, a spectacle by putting on our music, which is a horse racing kills song. And we, yeah, kind of rained on their parade, so to speak, their party. They were all uh, schmoozing in this um, little uh, set up on the river. And we, um, yeah, we got to, to give them a dose of the truth down there, which was good. So, um, yeah, it was a successful day, I think. Yeah, so it was good that we could still use that opportunity to raise awareness, even though the parade has been cancelled. And hopefully for those who perhaps in the moment weren't very supportive of your message, hopefully they go away and they can reflect on all the messages that you were trying to get across. Because like you said, it seems like the public support for racing is going down. And the fact that, yeah, they did cancel the parade this year is is a great sign. I wanted to touch on the number of horses that have died in the past year. I know that the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses put out their annual report for Death Watch. And I believe that this year was the highest number of horses that have been killed since you've been publishing this report for over a decade now. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. 
Yeah, so this is the most deadly year we've ever recorded since we started researching, recording and publishing the deaths on track, which was 2014, I think our first report. So yeah, almost a decade. And there were, yeah, the highest number. So it was 29 more deaths this year. And the, that's horrific in itself. That's one horse being killed on Australian racetracks every two days. But on top of that, it's, you know, we're in the moment where because there's been so many public deaths in the sense that they've happened at the Melbourne Cup, we have the industry now telling us how they've addressed all the, the safety issues for the horses because we they they had to do something because they were getting such bad publicity from from the 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 deaths happening at you know the one of the most watched horse races in the world for for the year so what they've done is they've implemented these new um, stringent veterinary checks for the horses and proper scanning before they get on the track and things so they don't this can't eliminate the risk of death certainly because a lot of deaths um, can't be avoided even if you do know the state of the horse's body before they hit the racetrack, but it will reduce the death so that the cup is a bit safer. But they're not implementing these stringent veterinary checks in any other races across the country when there's thousands through the years. So the, that proves the absolute point that they only care about the bad media, not the horses, or else they'd be doing it in every single race, right? So so this and so this statistic that the the industry doesn't put out we do they don't release a report on how many horses were killed each year of course so we're able to show that things are getting better they're getting worse that's not something we celebrate but it's something we need to 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 put out there because they are so powerful they have so much money they have such a big marketing budget that people read these things and they trust them and they're absolute lies yeah that's a really good point Kristen thank you for that i also wanted to i, I read something in the report that i found quite shocking um, is that Racing Victoria edits their racing replays in order to hide horse injuries and deaths. Mm, they do. And so, yeah, it's not good for business seeing a horse's leg. I, I, I have to say something quite graphic at this moment, so I apologise, but seeing a horse's leg snap in half and be hanging by a thread literally, which is what we see so often, that's not good for business. Um, and they do not definitely want that on the screens. So what they'll do, they'll either... Well, mostly they'll they'll just chop out an entire section of a race. So there might be 10 horses racing and then suddenly there's nine, <laughs> you know, and that one that just legs snapped, you know, is, is cut out and then they show the end of the race. Um, or if the, the horse collapses near the finish line or just over the finish line, they'll cut away really quickly. I mean, they'll, yeah, they'll just do whatever they can to keep the truth. And that's why it's so from everyone. So that's why it's so important that we're exposing it. I think Racing Victoria was the most um, likely to edit a race in our stats. So we track how many of the horses that were killed. When there's a horse killed, we'll, we'll look at the replay, of course. Um, and we, we, we track who's editing the most. And Racing Victoria is the biggest culprit of that. They're also the biggest culprit of not explaining what the cause of death was. So they'll say serious racing injury in their stewards reports rather than, you know, explain what it was. So that, that killed the horse. So there's no way of us to sort of, in our stats, we'll say, you know, unknown death because it's, we don't know. And they're not, they call themselves open and transparent, but they won't tell the public how these horses are dying. What I've been able to gather over the years of watching is serious racing injury generally means the horse's leg snapped. And there's a lot of saying serious racing injury. So that's terrifying to us because we've actually been at the track and recorded horses leg snapping. And that's when they'll use that term. So that means that's happening a lot. And that's just, horrifically terrifying if anyone wants to look at our footage from uh, the Warnable Cup and the Warnable Jumps Carnival earlier this year we we did document that um, happening and it's exactly what happened to Anthony Van Dyke in 20 
at the 2020 Cup, I believe, that, you know, they said serious racing injury. That was that was what would have, that poor horse pretty much would have suffered. And that poor horse was dragged into a float and taken off the track before they euthanized the horse. And we believe that was because they didn't want to have the, you know, they didn't want to kill the horse on the track at the Cup again, which is what they had to do in 2018 in front of, you know, you know, thousands of people. So um, another point to make, I guess, is with these 168 deaths, these are only the ones we hear about. So they will often take the horses off the track when they're injured and then take them to the vet perhaps to see if they maybe legitimately to see if they can be healed and saved. Otherwise, take them away from the track and then euthanize them back at the farm. So these horses, most of these deaths we don't hear about because once the horse is removed from the track, they don't have they don't report the death in the stewards report. So one sixty eight is a massive understatement, unfortunately. And are there any mechanisms in place to hold these bodies accountable for honest reporting? No, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, we go to the you know we've we've got a minister for racing in our parliament. I mean it's just ludicrous, and they are there to protect racing. They won't talk to us. They won't support what we're trying to, to do. They won't place pressure. The only way this industry will will get pressure placed on it is by the public changing their mind and stop supporting it because, as we've seen, we've only started seeing them make improvements and fix things up when, you know, we'll try or pretend they're fixing things up, I'll say, um, until where they're exposing what they're actually doing. So, unfortunately, there is no real, or, you know, authority over the industry that is powerful enough or has any power really to put to do much to them at all. It literally will come down. And once 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 we get to a point where people start saying, I won't vote for you unless you, you know, stop supporting racing in the parliament, then these politicians are going to keep supporting it because they're addicted to the gambling income that comes from it. Twenty billion dollars in wagering um was spent in Australia. Uh and then over COVID lockdowns, thirty billion turnover in wagering was spent on thoroughbred racing alone. So they're shocking big numbers and the government's addicted to the revenue. Well, let's talk about Nut to the Cup. Can you talk about what this event is? So, um, yeah, we coined the term Nut to the Cup back in 2010, I think, um, a couple of years after we formed. And uh, we've been having a gathering, we call it a picnic and protest at the park across the road from Flemington Racecourse at the New Market Reserve since then. And we've just sort of slowly grown it from a group of, 20 activists sitting around having a little bit of a laugh and a bit of a protest and holding some signs to show that, you know, you can gather and have fun and dress up without engaging in animal abuse to now it becoming this sort of a nationwide event. So it's great. There's um, gosh knows how many events happening around the country. We've got about 30 registered on our website, I think, but a lot of the events, the Nup to the Cups are private in-house things, so they don't register. Some people do let us know, but they say, please don't make it public because it's like literally a workplace luncheon or something and they're not doing it for the public. So so that's just become, that's a movement that's only growing and growing every year, which is so refreshing and um, inspiring to see. Our, our party, um, Nup to the Cup, is getting bigger every year. Where this year we're at the Flemington and Kensington Bowls Club because um, the weather was so atrocious last year, we never wanted to put anyone through that again. So now we've got indoors and outdoors, which is fantastic. We're still right near the, the race course. We can still head down. We will still head down to the park right at the front there and have a presence there with our banners and, and things for people walking to the races, walking past to see us. But um, most of the all the fun will be happening behind that at the Bowls Club. So the whole concept is to throw the biggest party we can, tell people you don't need to engage in animal abuse to have a good time. We're going to have uh, play lunch and the Tarantinos playing live. 
We're going to have uh, DJ Jen Moore and DJ Brontosaurus Sex playing out on the lawn. There'll be free bowls as well, all included in your entry fee. Um, you can you can do some lawn bowls. We're going to have a, a vegan barbecue with loads of delicious food and sweets. We'll have a merch store set up there. And the most important thing is we will have our human races, which we call fashions on the field, which is just a piss take on the um, fashions on the field that happens at the at the track. And uh, everyone just dresses up. They can dress fabulous. They can dress outrageous. They can dress, you know, however they like into the races. And it's not about speed. It's about prowess. So it's about being entertaining whilst you um, walk the lawn. So it's a really fun day. It's a family-friendly day and we'll be here from 11 till 6 and it's $25 entry. You can get your tickets online and if it's not sold out, you'll also be able to get them at the door tomorrow. That sounds like it's going to be a great event. So thank you for that, Kristen. Finally, before we go, I just wanted to ask you, what can listeners do to continue raise awareness? Um, We were talking before about putting pressure on MPs, uh, to end all support for racing. But I was wondering if there was anything else that, that people could do, um, keeping in mind that this isn't an issue that just comes around once a year, but well, it happens throughout the year. I think, you know, this is one of those things that really comes down to awareness raising. So any information you can share or if you're willing to go out and protest it, we have people sometimes that just call us in the middle of the year and go, look, there's a there's a race on down in somewhere in country New South Wales and we really want to go. There's just five of us and we want to go stand at the front and raise awareness. And that will send people posters that they can hold and uh, leaflets that they can use and just have that presence and just slowly, slowly, slowly start getting the world out, word out there. I guess sharing our things on social media is quite powerful because we do put out a lot of graphic videos that are hard to watch but um, have to be watched for people who are still supporting this. So sharing that with people is really important. Um, Just so you could go on there now and just click on the video tab or our YouTube channel and you'll just see 13 years worth of footage we've captured. Um, Some of it is not just track deaths but slaughterhouse footage. The ABC 730 did the final race in 2019 which exposed the um, systemic slaughter of horses in Slaughterhouse in Queensland um, and some knackeries in New South Wales. And that's so powerful still. It's still happening. Not at that that slaughterhouse has stopped killing horses now, thankfully, but but the knackeries are still killing, killing horses for pet food, unfortunately. So, yeah, just sharing information, I truly think, and getting out there and actually saying not good enough, educating your friends, converting. We've got a web, we've got a um, nut to the cup in the workplace tab on our website. So going back to the cup, I guess it's always the, a great opportunity to raise awareness because it is such a big thing. So people can look at our website and see how they can run and up to the cup in the workplace um, and we give them sort of tools and, and ideas and things so we can stop that culture of supporting horse racing and join our protests. We don't have lots of protests through the year, but we do have we do have some. So look out, join our mailing list at horseracingkills.com. Keep an eye on our socials and just join us and, and speak up. We need people, always need people to write. We do writing all year to different uh, media outlets and things. So anyone who's good at writing, we've got a volunteer application form on our website too. So just get in touch and we'll just guide you into how you can help. You just heard from Kristen Lee, Communications Director and Volunteer Coordinator at the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses. To find out more, you can go to horseracingkills.com or nuptothecup.org.
Well, that brings us to the end of our show today. Just to give you a quick recap of what we had on today's episode of Tuesday Breakfast, we started by replaying some of the speeches from various Free Palestine rallies that have taken place since October 15. We spoke with Dr. Louisa Smith about uh, the importance of developing models of care for LGBTIQ plus people with dementia. We then spoke with uh, Chloe DS, who came on the show to speak to us about the upcoming People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port in, uh, in Newcastle. And just a reminder that there's a fundraising barbecue happening today at Alexandra Gardens for um, raising money for the NAM convoy. We then spoke with Dr. Stephanie Westcott about the rise of um, misogynist influences on social media and the federal government's proposal to address toxic masculinity on social media with a three-year project. And finally, we heard from Kristen Lee from the Coalition uh, for the Protection of Racehorses speaking to us about saying nup to the cup. That's all we have time for today on Tuesday Breakfast. Make sure you tune in tomorrow uh, and the rest of the week. And up next is Accent of Women. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.